Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 3 through 11. That can be found on page 785 of your pew Bible. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil then left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. I'm delighted that you are back with us for our Bible 101 series. This series is based on a very simple premise. It's very simply the idea that the better we understand the Bible, the better we'll be able to apply it to our lives. So we have spent some time in this series trying to better understand. We've talked about the formation and structure of the Old Testament, formation and structure of the New Testament. We've also spent some time in application. For example, one of the things that can be true is that the Bible can be an intimidating book. One of the ways that we allow the Bible to become more accessible in our lives is by knowing what books are actually contained within it. And so I've challenged the people at Ebenezer Church to learn all 66 books of the Bible and to be able to say them in a minute or less. Because if I can do that, I know that I know them. We've also talked about the importance of having a healthy, steady, daily diet of Scripture. And to that end, the church has published a daily Scripture reading guide that will take us through the end of this year. Accompanying that reading guide are three questions that help us digest each passage of Scripture as we read it. If you didn't, if you do not have one of those yet, you can pick one up at the Connection Desk and we'll make them available online for those of you joining us online. Last week we also happened to talk about the Bible app, and I've already heard back from a number of people how much they are enjoying the Bible app. It really has a lot of really cool features. So we have talked about the formation structure of the Old Testament. We've talked about formation structure of the New Testament. Today we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about some issues with regards to Scripture, some modern questions we wrestle with in terms of the Bible. Like, for example, what's up with all those translations, man? Right? There are all kinds, there are hundreds, hundreds of translations of the Bible out there. What's going on with that? Well, we don't have time to go through and talk about all the various translations, but I wanted to kind of give you a framework by which you could make sense of the differences amongst the translations today. There, there are really kind of three different types of translations, and when biblicists talk about translating, they use the language of equivalence. Why? Because the question at hand is, how do we make things from ancient Greek and Hebrew equivalent in modern languages like English? How do we make them equivalent? So three different types of translations, three different types of equivalencies. First is called formal equivalence. 
A formal equivalence translation is a word-for-word translation of the Bible. If the Old Testament says chicken in Hebrew, it says chicken in English, right? It's word-for-word translation of the Bible. Some examples of these are the King James Version and the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. There's another type of translation called a dynamic equivalence translation. Dynamic means movement. And rather than trying to translate word-for-word what the Bible says... These dynamic equivalence translations are trying to understand the entirety of an idea that's being conveyed. So they translate idea for idea, phrase for phrase from ancient languages into modern languages. So you've got a word for word type of translation, phrase for phrase type of translation. An example of that dynamic equivalence is a fairly popular version of the Bible called the Good News Bible is an example of the dynamic equivalence. And then there's a third type. And the third type of translation is called mutual equivalence. And what that means is that there are some times that the uh, translators will use dynamic and sometimes they will use formal. In other words, they'll sometimes do word for word and sometimes they will translate idea for idea. The most famous example of the mutual equivalence type of translation is the new international version. Let me just take pulse right here. You guys are still with me? You still picking up on Fernando? Okay. All right. Praise the Lord. I just, I know it's rainy outside. It's good nap weather here at Stafford. Uh, so I want to make sure. Uh, so word for word, idea for idea, or you can mix them together. And uh, the NIV is a good example of that. Let me say one other word about this. In addition to the different types of translations, there's also a thing out there called a Bible paraphrase. And one great example of a Bible paraphrase was done by Eugene Peterson. It's called the message Bible. And what happens in a paraphrase is somebody takes a document that's already been translated of the Bible and then they put it into different language. They quite literally paraphrase it. And there are some pastors who, who are down on paraphrase stuff. I, I, when I was in high school church, when I was in high school, the Bible that I used regularly was the Living Bible and that version of the Living Bible happened to be a paraphrase and it absolutely made the Bible come alive for me. It was a fantastic translation, or fantastic experience to read that paraphrase. I would just give you this caution, right? If you're reading along in the Bible and you say, I feel like the Bible is telling me I need to sell my house and move to the Bahamas, right? If I'm reading it in the paraphrase, I might want to go back and and check the NIV and see what it says first, right? I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. Before I stand up here and teach or preach on something, before I make a significant decision, I'm probably going to check the language of a paraphrase first. But for day-to-day consumption of the Bible, paraphrases can be really, really helpful in our development as Christians. This, of course, leads us to a natural question. And the question is this. All right, preacher. What is the best translation of the Bible? Well, church, that is absolutely a matter of opinion. It is. For example, a number of years ago, back when I was in college, this is back in the last millennium, that's when I went to college, church. Uh, I was driving through the hills of East Tennessee, and I came across a stop sign. And right beside the stop sign, there was another sign advertising Red Fern Primitive Baptist Church. And the tagline under the advertisement for the church said, standing firmly on the promises of the King James 1611. What does that mean? Well, the first significant English translation of the Bible was commissioned by King James in the year 1611. So this group of people got together and decided that the best translation for them was the 507-year-old King James 1611. My guess is, knowing many of you, that is probably not where you're going to come down 
on the best translation. And if you were to press me and say, Rob, what do you really think is the best translation of the Bible? I will tell you what I think, but I have to put this in parentheses of saying, this is Rob's opinion. Rob's opinion. If you really press me on what are the best translations of the Bible, I would tell you that I think there are two that are really, really world-class translations. There are other fantastic translations. I would suggest there are really two fantastic ones. The New Revised Standard Version and the New International Version. And if you really pushed me to pick which one of those two I liked more, I would tell you that I like the New Revised Standard Version just a little bit more. And it's really just for two reasons. First... One of the reasons that I like the New Revised Standard Version is because in the New Revised Standard Version, there is an appropriate uh, use of gender-inclusive language. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the ancient world, in Hebrew and Greek, the masculine language form of language was dominant. And so, when people wanted to convey that a promise was true for all the world, for everybody in the world, the language that they used was all men. And there are people in this room who still, if you hear the phrase, all men, you're going to think, everybody. But! My generation and below, if we hear all men, we're likely to think about a bunch of dudes, right? There is a distinction, a change in our language. So when the New Revised Standard Version translates something like all men, it goes back to the original intent and says what it was tempting to convey was all humanity, so it translates it as the word humanity. This has become, interestingly, far more important to me in the last four years since God graced us with a little girl. I've been very attentive to this thing. Here's the second thing. The Bible is a gift from God, but God partnered with human beings in the development of the Scripture. God used human beings to write the Bible. God uses human beings to translate the Bible. God uses human beings to read and apply the Bible. And therefore, every version of the Bible is going to have some human fingerprints on it. That's not a bad thing. It's simply reality. It is my opinion that the New Revised Standard Version has a few fewer fingerprints on it than the NIV. Let me give you an example. I want to compare two texts with you from Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. This is a parallel reading of Genesis 2, 19, NIV to NRSV. Now the Lord God, says the NIV, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. The Lord God had formed it. That's, that means prior to this point in the story... God had formed these things. Are you with me so far? Three of you. Praise the Lord. All right, let's keep going. So now let's look at the new Revised Standard Version. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every creature. See the distinction there. One says that God had already done it before the story. One says that God is doing it in the midst of the story. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we find ourselves with two creation stories. In creation story number one, God is called God, Elohim. In creation story number two, in Genesis two, God is called Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. These stories are wonderful stories. In the first story, God creates, God is kingly and powerful. God says things and things happen. God says, let there be light and all of a sudden there's light. Not only that, not only is God kingly and powerful, God is well-ordered in Genesis chapter 1. The first three days of creation, God creates spaces. The next three days of creation, God goes back and populates those spaces. There is a rhythm to the creative effort. God is kingly and powerful and ordered in the first creation story. In the second creation story, God is much more anthropomorphized. What I mean by that is God looks more like a human. God is almost childlike as God kneels down and forms the first human from the dust of the earth and then... 
blows the, bru- the ruach, the breath of life, into Adam, creating the Adam, the man from the Adamah, the earth. It's a beautiful story. What I love about these, these two creation stories, what I love about them is that they give us a nuanced reality, a picture of God. One tells us that God is kingly, powerful, ordered, and strong. The other tells us that God is intimate and connected and close. Which account is correct? They both teach us something about who God is. So if we go back to this distinction in Genesis 2.19, why would the New International Version say God had formed the creatures? Well, it says God had formed the creatures in an attempt, I believe, to try and put the two creation stories together, right? Whereas the New Revised Standard Version wants to preserve the distinction between the two creation stories. And you could say that's a lot of conversation around the insertion of one word. Yeah, it is. But you know, I asked on your behalf what I thought, and now I'm telling you. So there you go. You're welcome. Uh, but here's the deal, church. Here's the, here's the real the real thing. You ask me what I think are the best. I really think these two Bibles are, are fantastic Bibles. That's why when we handed out Bibles here at Ebenezer, we handed out the study Bibles, NIV and NRSV study Bibles. But that's not the right question to ask. The right question isn't what does Rob think is the best Bible. The right question to ask is, what is the best Bible for me? Because the best Bible in the world is the one that you will read. So, if NIV is your jam, read the NIV. NRSV is your jam, read the NRSV. Common English Bible, New American Standard Bible. If you want a a paraphrase, read a paraphrase. But my challenge to you is this. Find the Bible that you can connect with most clearly and read it every single day. So, moving to some practical application for just a moment, there could be another question that comes up out of this discussion with regards to translations. And one discussion that could come out, one question that could come out is, okay, if there are these fingerprints, these human fingerprints on, on these various translations, how then do we get back to the, the original meaning of the original text? That's a good question. And I would offer you two possible answers to that question. If I really want to get at the heart of the original text, one thing I could do is become an expert in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Most of you don't seem excited about that prospect. No. Okay, so let's move on to another one. You know one way to really kind of unlock scriptures? If you really want to do a deep dive with a particular passage of the Bible, one way to do this is to read multiple translations of the same text, to read multiple versions. Uh, it, it, it unlocks, every time I do this, it unlocks new things in the scripture. And I don't want to just tell you this is true as an intellectual paradigm. I want to give you an example based on the story I referenced last week, the story of a man by the name of Zacchaeus. So in Luke chapter 19, we find a parallel reading between the God's Word version and the American Standard version of the Bible. Uh, he tried to see who Jesus was, but Zacchaeus was a small man and he couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. And of course, the next sentence is, so he climbed a sycamore tree, right? Now read the American Standard Version. And he sought out to see who Jesus, to see Jesus, who, who he was, and could not for the crowd, for the crowd because he was little of stature. 
You see, the difference here is the God's word translation translates one of the masculine pronouns as Zacchaeus. That's not the way it occurs in the original Greek. In the original Greek, it is the word he. And in the original Greek, there is also some ambiguity as to what the antecedent of the word he is. In other words, the question for us would be, did Zacchaeus climb a sycamore tree because Zacchaeus was short? Or did Zacchaeus climb a sycamore tree because Jesus was short? And some of you are saying, that is enough, preacher. (laughs) Jesus Christ was not short. (laughs) And some of you who might be smaller of stature yourselves are saying, finally a win for the little guy, right? (laughs) Here's my point. When we read multiple versions of a text, new possibilities are unlocked for us. And it helps the text become more alive and resonant in our lives. So I commend that to us as one tool we could use for deep, thorough study of Scripture. Okay, back to the understanding piece for a moment. One of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, how should we most appropriately regard Scripture? And throughout history... The Christian church has very broadly and very generally come down on two sides of how we regard scripture. One side is called the sufficiency side. There are sufficiency people here. And, and what that means is that the Bible is sufficient for salvation. It has the things that are sufficient for salvation in it. The other side is the inerrancy side. There are people in the world who would say that the Bible is absolutely inerrant. It has no errors in it whatsoever. Now, there are challenges that could be raised to either side of this broad divide. For example, with this sufficiency question, right? One of my concerns about the idea of biblical sufficiency is that it gives us broad license to determine what we will hold authoritative in Scripture and what we will not hold as authoritative in Scripture. For example... I could say, I like all that stuff about loving people, but marital fidelity, eh. And before you think that's ridiculous, a couple of churches ago, (laughs) whoa, just want to make sure I had your attention. (laughs) A couple of churches ago, not here, right? A couple of churches back, I had a woman come to me and say, Pastor, if my husband and I agree that we can see other people What's wrong with that? Before you sit in judgment of her, I just, it takes some intestinal fortitude to ask your pastor a question like that, wouldn't you agree? Right? And so I picked my jaw back up off the ground and I said to her, well, um, the answer is because the covenant of marriage isn't just between you and your husband. The covenant of marriage is between you, your husband, and God. My point is just to say, If we're going to inhabit a doctrine of biblical sufficiency, we have to be really careful not to disregard portions of the Bible just because we don't like them. Let's talk about biblical inerrancy for a second, because there are challenges there as well. For example, did you know that in the book of Matthew, Matthew records that Judas Iscariot took his own life by hanging. Luke records in Acts chapter 1 that Judas Iscariot took his own life by jumping off a cliff and his bowels spilling out on the ground. 
And if I'm going to inhabit a perspective of biblical inerrancy, I've got to find a way to bring perspectives like that together. I've seen intelligent people do it. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm simply saying that there are challenges on both sides of this sufficiency and inerrancy conversation. I want to offer two concerns. One, when it comes to this this piece of how we regard Scripture, my whole life, I've seen people on opposite sides of this divide tear each other apart. It has become a, a ripe opportunity in the midst of a church that our Lord Jesus Christ called to be unified. It's become a great opportunity for disunity. That concerns me. Here's the other thing. Sometimes I think about this inerrancy sufficiency conversation. Sometimes I think that it, it concerns me about the, the posture we inhabit before Scripture. It's as if I walk up to Scripture and I tell Scripture what Scripture is. It's, it's almost like, like we're, we're two physicians standing over someone who is dying. And we both have a life-saving medication in our hand. And we stand there arguing with each other about which medication has potential for fewer side effects. I want to offer a new perspective. Perhaps a different way. What would it look like if instead of using the language of inerrancy sufficiency, or rather to find common ground in this conversation, what would it look like to use the language of necessity? Necessity. Here's what I like about it. It changes my posture before scripture. The language of necessity, what that means is, I am the one who stands desperately in need of what scripture can give me. It takes me from being the physician who's debating the merits of Scripture and it puts me in my rightful place. I'm the patient in the bed who desperately needs what the Scripture can give me. And by the way, this is the language that the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, gave to us. He said, Scripture contains all things necessary for our salvation. I'm not suggesting that we have to walk away from the things we believe about sufficiency or inerrancy. I am suggesting that there is great opportunity for us to come together. And recognize our posture before scripture, which is that we stand united in our desperate need for what scripture gives to us. If that's the case, then we have to ask the question, okay, what is it that scripture does give to us? What is the help that scripture provides? Using our last couple of weeks scriptures, I, I just want to, I want to give you, give us a glimpse into some of the help that scripture provides for us. This, this morning, we read the story of Jesus being tempted by the accuser, by the devil himself. And when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, uh, the first temptation was a temptation of the flesh. Jesus had been for 40 days without food, and the devil said, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You're hungry. Have, have yourself a meal. Jesus responds to the devil by saying, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus responded to a physical temptation with the help of Scripture. And I would suggest that we today still face physical temptations. For some of us, it's still food, right? For others of us, it's drink. For some of us, it might be lust. I don't know what the temptation you tend to to feel is, but here's what I can tell you. One of the gifts of Scripture is that it gives us the power to help overcome those temptations of a physical nature in our lives. The next story, Jesus is taken up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and the devil asked Jesus to do something that was dumb. He said, why don't you just jump off the temple? Which is dumb, right? We can agree on that. That's a dumb idea. Don't do that. That would be silly. 
The devil said, why don't you just off off the temple? Because it's written that God will give God's angels charge over you. You won't even, your heel won't even strike the stones. And Jesus said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, what's, what's happening here is, is an evaluation of two different ways that we can experience God. One is to believe that I should do whatever I want to do, live however I want to live, and God's going to help me in the emergency. The other is to say, I believe so fully in God's providence for my life, I don't need to test God and do things that are silly. In other words, Scripture helps us have an appropriate understanding of who God is. Scripture helps us defeat physical temptation. Scripture helps us have an appropriate understanding of who God is. And then there's one final temptation Jesus endures. Jesus is taken up on a mountaintop, and he has shown all the kingdoms of the earth. And the devil looks at him, he says, listen man, you do not have to go to the cross. If you bow down and worship me, I'll just give you the kingdoms of the earth. We could think of this as a temptation of comfort, but I think of it as something else. One of the great theologians of the last century was a guy by the name of Karl Barth. And Karl Barth diagnosed our human condition by saying, we human beings are idol makers. He said, our tendency is to unseat God from the central place in our lives and to put someone else in that role. Maybe it's ourselves, maybe it's our love interest, maybe it's our children, maybe it's our ambition or our jobs or our anxiety. He said, but we are idol makers. We unseat God. We tend to put something there. What scripture does for us is it helps us maintain an appropriate focus and center in our lives. Scripture helps me avoid temptation. Scripture helps me have an appropriate understanding of God. Scripture helps me stay focused in my life, but that's not all. Last week we read a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3. The passage begins in verse 16, and it says, All Scripture is inspired. That means God breathed into it. That's what inspired means. It's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. But what I really want you to key on is verse 17 here. So that... Everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Scripture is not just about me living the abundant life for my own sake. Scripture also helps prepare me to make a difference in this world to the glory of the one who rescued me and saved my life. Scripture prepares us to be missional people on this earth. We need it, church. We need it. We need scripture to center us. We need it to keep us on the straight, narrow path. And we need it to prepare us to do the work that God has called us to do. We need it. One final thought this morning. You've heard me talk before about the importance in my life of our small group here at Ebenezer Church. Um, we did some research this year from basing on you guys. And one of the things we heard back from 516 participants across this church was that Ebenezer has a tendency to be a big church with a small church feel. And my sense is that part of the reason that folks feel that way is because of our heavy involvement in small groups. My small group gathers for the most part at the 1115 service. They all sit kind of together. And so even though there are several hundred people in this room, it feels more intimate because they know one another. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of the people in my small group, he deployed. And in that last couple of weeks, 
we've had that family over to our house twice because in the midst of our small group, not only do we kind of feel more connected to one another, but we are a family. We care for one another in difficult times. I'm saying all this to you to say this. If you are not in a small group at Ebenezer Church, I want you to know I think you're missing something. I think you're missing a great opportunity to connect with other people and to connect with God. So if you're not involved in a small group, before you leave today, I just want to encourage you to stop by the connection desk. Chat with somebody there and give them the opportunity to get you plugged into one of these small groups. So that's the case if you're not in a small group. If you are in a small group, I want to talk to you for just a second. One of the things I've discovered uh, or I've noted about our small groups is our small groups have a tendency, we have a tendency uh, to study and read books about the Bible. Sometimes we study and read books about the Bible so much that we don't actually bring our own Bibles to small group and read from our Bibles. And uh, I saw this phenomenon in my own small group, and so one of the things we talked about recently is what it would look like to accept a challenge. And I'm going to offer the same challenge to you all that I'm offering to my small group. You don't have to pick up this challenge. Nobody's going to steal your small group card if you choose not to do it, right? But here's what I want to suggest. We're doing right now a series on marriage and family. And it's a great series. And my suggestion to our small group is after this is finished, what if we did, what if we did the book of James? Five chapters. Cover a chapter a night. Everybody bring their own individual versions of the Bible so we can kind of do a deep dive on that. And my challenge is throughout the 2018, 2019 academics year, what might it look like if our small groups covenanted that at least every other study, we're going to primarily study the scriptures? What happens? When God's people who are connected to each other, who have been studying for years, what happens when those people come together and through an unfiltered lens read God's holy word together? I think we'll be amazed at the clarity with which we will hear God's voice in our own lives. So thank you for being here for this third installment of Bible 101. I hope you'll join us next week for the final installment. But until then, church. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks. For those gathered in this room, for those watching online, we give you thanks, O Lord, for your absolute conviction to speak to our lives. We thank you for the gift of Scripture, for the processes that have ensured its holy nature among us. We give you thanks for the way that we can read it individually and together as groups and we can be nurtured by it, the way that it helps us to avoid temptation, to maintain a central focus on you, but also for the way it prepares us to go forth and transform the world to your glory. God, I pray that you would inspire within all of us an, a relentless thirst for your word, to hear your voice in our lives through the language of Scripture. God, I also want to pray for our small groups today. I thank you for people who have made the commitment to be part of these. I ask that you would continue to bless them. I thank you for the leaders. I thank you for those who show up each week. We ask that your Holy Spirit would possess us with great power and wisdom as we engage in the ongoing study of your word. We pray these things with great expectation of life change and world change because we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And always for the sake of his kingdom. And all of God's people said, Amen.